0: What's up, friends? Great show today. Our guest is the host of one of my favorite investing podcasts and is about to release his second book about how the world's elite money managers lead and invest. Today's episode, we go all the way back to our guest's early days, working under the great David Swinson at Yale to hear what makes him one of the most respected chief investment officers in the world. Then we move on to his famous bet with Warren Buffett. And who here the real winner of that bet was? And hint, it wasn't Ted or Warren. After touching on what the chief investment officer job really entails and insights he's learned from literally speaking with hundreds of the top managers in the world, our guest shares how he invests his own money. We talk about stocks, ETFs, private funds in VC, Bill Ackman's funds, SPACs, and even some crypto. This episode is sponsored by our friends at YCharts. A typical day in the life of a financial advisor calls for back-to-back client meetings, juggling portfolio management, and the consistent desire to improve client relationships. Why Chart's report and proposal tools could be the missing piece to help you effectively handle these time-consuming tasks. Now more than ever, clients want to hear from their advisors and with user-friendly templates at your disposal, generating impactful client reports can be easily integrated into your everyday routine, helping you free up time and focus on what matters most, enhancing client interactions and growing AUM. Need to make a clear head-to-head comparison between a client's existing portfolio and your proposed one? Want a seamless way to educate your client and present market trends with minimal effort? Join thousands of users who rely on YCharts to easily answer those questions and much more by leveraging personalized proposal reports to truly showcase your value add. Click the link in the show notes to learn what others are saying about YCharts' comprehensive suite of reporting and proposal generation tools. Get 20% off your initial YCharts professional subscription when you start your free YCharts trial. Click the link in the show notes or tell them Meb sent you for new customers only. Please enjoy this episode with the host of the Capital Allocators podcast, Ted Seides. Ted, welcome
1: to the show. Thanks, Meb. Great to be here with you.
0: Last time I saw you in person, you were hobbling away in rural Pennsylvania, I think. Have you, have you since recovered? We were, yeah. <laughs>
1: Blisters on the feet. Yeah, recovered. That was, that was a while back.
0: I spent the next day in whatever rural airport that was in Pennsylvania. I can't remember, but I'm not a germaphobe, but I try to stay away from those like airport massage chairs. That just seems kind of gross to me, (laughs) particularly I was ahead of my time in COVID. No one would do that, of course, but I think I was with Corey Hofstein. I think I spent probably an hour and a half in one just I must have spent $30 in quarters. I was so sore. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and that was a long time ago, a lifetime ago. Yeah. How you staying, staying in COVID? You're in Connecticut?
1: Things have been good. Yeah. Home in Connecticut. Just finished, as you talked about, just finished first ski trip with my kids. So flew somewhere. It's kind of interesting. But yeah, everything's
0: calm. Did you, did you go out west, catch the big snow?
1: There was a big dump last week. Yeah, well, no, we just missed that one. It was two weeks ago. So yeah, I went out to Beaver Creek.
0: Oh, beautiful. My cruise in Colorado were this photo for the YouTubers. No one watches this on video, but the YouTubers is from Colorado and the Four Tops Wilderness we took this summer. But as we were talking about this before the show started, I bookended COVID. Last stop was Jackson Hole before COVID and just took my first trip. The world I think is ready to get out of the house. My sentiment indicators are firing. Ted, you got a new book. What's the name of
1: it? It's a shocking name, given what I've been doing. It's called Capital Allocators. Subtitle, How the World's Elite Money Managers Lead and Invest.
0: It's good. My favorite part, oddly enough, is you have a whole bunch of quotes in there, and some of them had me hee-hawing last night. So we'll include a few of those during our talk. It's not your first rodeo. You've written a book before and been featured in some others. We're going to do something different today, listeners, and this is going to be really fun. We're going to talk about how Ted invests his own money. But first... For those who don't know Ted, we got to hit on a couple highlights. And the first of which was, you arguably have one of the most epic beginning stories out of college, first jobs I've probably ever heard. And a secondary question is, why in the world did you ever leave that position? Tell tell our listeners (laughs) how you got started out of school.
1: So I graduated college in 1992. And for those who don't know or remember, it was the bottom of a recession. Not easy to find jobs. And I did the normal Wall Street stuff and had some interviews. And along the way, I interviewed with David Swenson at Yale. So I had taken a class of his. He used to teach two, and he still teaches one, and had mentioned that they hire one person a year. And I didn't know much. I I knew I thought stocks were interesting, but I was not a 13 year old investing in stocks. And did the interviews, got the job, and ended up thinking I'd stay two or three years and go to business school. He was big on the CFA. So I get my CFA and I did that, but it was just fun. So I ended up staying five years and then leaving to go to business school. So the question is why? It's a fair question. There are times where I've looked back and wondered that. You know, It was my first job. I didn't know much else. I would not recommend to people starting their career at the top of a food chain, which is what I was. (laughs) Didn't realize that's what I was. But at the time, you have to keep in mind, David had not yet written his book. He is amazing. He's a brilliant investor. He was an incredible mentor. He was like another father to me. But it felt like I was making a lifelong career decision if I was going to stay. There were no recruiting calls. There were no other endowment investment offices. I think there were no more than a half dozen in the country. And I don't know and I don't think there was another junior analyst in the kind of seat I was outside of our office where there were a few in the entire country. So... It wasn't like a profession. Now there are all these investment offices, endowments, and foundations. And so, yeah, the returns were great, and the managers I met were great. But I thought I wanted to pick stocks, and it just wasn't a path to do it. So I got into business school and decided to go. Plus, it was the 90s,
0: right? I mean, the beginning and a long-extended just monster bull. Thinking back at that time, the endowments, despite their great performance, probably really didn't see at least relative halo until – arguably the early 2000s. Is that safe to say? He was still a famous CIO, but not the GOAT CIO at that point of the endowment world.
1: The difference was where it was portrayed. I tell a story that in the five years I worked at Yale, I think there was one manager of Yale's who showed up in an article in the Wall Street Journal in the five years I was there. That was Jim Chanos at the time. Today, every single day, you could read about a top venture capital firm in the Wall Street Journal every single day, money managers every single day. People didn't even know who the managers were. And so it was just a very, very different time. And so, yeah, Yale's returns were amazing then in spite of the asset allocation because you were in a bull market and they were diversified away from, call it US public equities. But that was all manager selection with these just incredible money managers around the world. But Within that field, people knew that he was one of the best. Nobody knew outside of it. So
0: you make the poor decision to leave. <laughs> I'm <laughs> laughing I about mean, your comment about starting at the top of the food chain. I heard a quote today. Charlie Munger is doing his daily journal meeting, 97 years old. And someone asked him like something about the key to happiness. He's just like, I have low expectations. That applies well to everything. Yeah. I was like, it's starting at the premier institution in the country it is tough. All right. So you hop around, you go to Harvard for a little bit. You start a protege. I want to pause here. I know you've told the story a thousand, 10,000 times. it's not really necessarily, I just want the listeners to hear it about the bet. But there's one key part of the bet that I think is so wonderful, and we'll get to in a second, and that involves actual, the real technical winner maybe, which was the collateral. Can you give us a real quick summary of the bet?
1: Yeah, sure. So the bet, which started, initiated in January 1 of 2008, was a 10-year wager for charity that pitted effectively the S&P 500 against hedge funds. The way it was presented was it was the Vanguard S&P 500 index fund, and our side had picked a portfolio of five different hedge fund funds, and there's a whole bunch of reasons why. But at the time, the S&P 500 was trading at historical highs. Interest rates were also at 4 or 5%, so there was no reason why that's historical highs might be the case, and hedge funds were doing well. So that was a bet. Looked great for about a year and a half, and I don't know if there was another quarter in the subsequent eight and a half years that hedge funds outperform the market. But the collateral is a really fun story. So the idea of the bet was that we wanted a million dollars to go to charity at the end of 10 years. And we pre-funded it and split it. So my partners and I and Warren. And the game theory was if you pledge a million dollars and at the end of 10 years, you only have 800 there, that just doesn't look good. And if you pledge a million dollars and you have like 1.2 or 1.3 million, that's great, but it's a million dollars is a million dollars. So we just bought a zero coupon bond. And the bet got publicized. It's actually hard to make a charitable wager legally. And his lawyer found this charity called the Long Bets Foundation. I think it's longbets.org, and they posted on the site. And if you read the blog at the time, so this is great stuff about decision-making, what were people thinking at the time? The only thing anybody said about the collateral was how the charities were the losers.
0: <laughs> like, why would you do
1: that? You know, hedge funds are great. No, no, the market's great. Warren Buffett. Yeah. Right, so January 1, 2008. So about five years in, I don't remember exactly when it was, five, six years in, I called Warren one day and I said, hey, do you remember what we did with the collateral? And he paused for a second and he just started laughing because we put it in a zero and then interest rates went to zero. So it was $640,000, Jan 1 of 2008. And five or six years later, it had accrued to like 960. So you had four years left and it wasn't going to make any money. What we were going to do was do a bet within a bet and take the collateral, split it half in Berkshire stock and half in our fund of funds, and then have like a bet within the bet. But it turned out that that charitable organization that was holding the capital was not an accredited investor. So they couldn't invest in our fund of funds. So we just put it in Berkshire stock and then Warren wrote a put at a million just in case. That was about a month before his first buyback. And over those next couple of years, the market continued... The charity, you know, his charity was, I'm trying to remember what the charity was, some fantastic, you know, charity in Omaha. It was like the Boys and Girls Club or something. I think I think it was, something like that. They ended up getting $2.2 million. So it was the single best investment. It was better than the market. It was better than hedge funds. It was one trade five years in. The one thing that no one foresaw, including us. And just goes to show you, you just never know in markets. It's so good. I love it. You still never
0: disclose the funds, right? To my knowledge. All right.
1: Yeah. I mean, it didn't really matter. There was a reason why. One of them was a pseudo family office, pseudo fund of funds. And they said they would agree to participate on the condition that their name wasn't disclosed. So we just said, we just won't disclose any of the names.
0: As far as the general categories, I mean, obviously we can all be Monday morning quarterbacks. Is there anything, not specific funds, but is there anything about the approach that, because I mean, I imagine there's been obviously rolling time periods. If you were to roll that forward every year for the past 20 years, what percentage of the time? I mean, my God, the S&P's stomped everything at this point, but... Is there anything you would think about as far as the general allocation or categories? Was it mostly long short? Was it mostly market neutral?
1: I mean, you hit the nail on the head. Ultimately, it didn't matter, right? It was S&P wins over everything. At the time, so you're going into this 10-year bet and Warren's argument is fees and costs. And that's right, but that's right within a contained universe. And the S P 500 is a contained universe, but what hedge funds are playing isn't at all. So you could make whatever bet you wanted to. Part of the reason why we picked fund of funds was it just looked like an easy bet. Just where the market was trading, you would bet on anything else but the S&P at that point in time for 10 years. And so hedge funds seemed just as good as anything else. But in the spirit of the bet, we said, okay, let's make it long-short equity. And it was more global than the US, which ultimately hurt too. In fact, one of the funny side notes of the bet was had Warren picked the Morgan Stanley World Index instead of the S&P 500, the bet would have almost been a wash S and P's like or U S is about forty percent of Morgan Stanley world. Just the difference between the performance of the S and P and the performance of equities around the rest of the world was enough to make up all the noise about hedge fund fees and underperformance of hedge funds. Just that difference. So there are a lot of sub things you could do differently. You could think about it in a much more sophisticated way. You could risk adjust it. You could tax adjust it in his favor. None of those things mattered. He sort of said S and P. That's the bet. You take it or you leave it.
0: I would have taken that bet 99 out of 100 times, maybe 100 times, given where markets were. And again, today, the funny thing is, so we're spending a little time updating an old book we did on asset allocation. And we published it, I think, with data up till 2014. We're walking it through to 2020. It takes asset classes back to the 70s and all these famous allocations. So Dalio, El Arian, Swinson, Buffett, permanent portfolio, yada, yada, all these listeners, it's free to download online. And the takeaway was that almost any of the allocations and these are buy and hold, rebounds, passive allocations, they all do great and all about the same. But the stupid Buffett portfolio, what he says like is a state or whatever, 90% S&P and 10% T-bills is like because of this monster run the S&P had, it's like the winner of all of these, which is so preposterous because I don't know Going forward, anyone that would take that massive amount, in my opinion, of risk, but I'm nervous to actually publish the updates because I don't want people extrapolating that you should just put all your money in the S and P. So almost anything looks worse in comparison.
1: Yeah, that's right. And you know, the S and P's had its own dynamic this last dozen years too. We used to laugh at countries like Korea where the index was really just Samsung, like Samsung stock was 40% of the index. They'd say that wasn't representative. And now we're getting there in the US. It's tech sector, five dominant companies. Yeah.
0: Although potentially we're recording this in February 21, I think the winds of change have already started. I feel like there's a disturbance in the force. I think it happened since last March. You're starting to see a lot of the dispersion, US foreign, US dollar, value, small cap, almost everything seems to have reversed. <laughs> we'll see. Things change quickly in 2021, but I think we may have reached an inflection point. Who knows? How many at this point? So, podcast, we'll call it 200. And by the way, listeners, if you haven't checked out Ted's podcast, it's on my very short list of favorites. It's probably the only podcast that really talks to the real money institutions, you know, the. 10 billion, the 50 billion, the 100 billion, very serious money managers. So podcast, let's write down 200. Besides that, over your career over the past 20 plus years, how many CIOs do you think you've spoken to? And meaning
1: PMs and CIOs? Oh, I mean, the years that I was running protege, was a hedge fund of funds, just 14 years, we probably met 400 hedge funds a year. And I was probably myself in 200, 250 of those meetings. That's a lot. There's a couple thousand just from that period of time. And I was doing that a lot at Yale, a little bit less so the last few years. And then every conversation you have with people along the way. So yeah, it's definitely a few thousand.
0: So the book is really fun. And it's a little different than I think what people may expect out of it. And I feel like you could fill up an entire book just on the stories alone, because there's nothing that... The personalities gravitate towards more than the hedge fund world. I mean, I think back to interviewing out of college at a couple of hedge funds, and there wasn't a single normal one. The first one I went to, I think, the PM was in the background shouting for about an hour and a half. And I was like, this is what this is like. This looks absolutely terrible. This looks like my all-time nightmare. And I could go on and on and on. So I imagine you have some. But why don't we start, and feel free to tell any of these stories as we go, why don't we start with... For the people who are listening who aren't that familiar with the big money world, what does the CIO do? I feel like they think like, it's Axelrod on billions combined with, I don't know, Warren Buffett. But really, like, what does the actual role entail
1: for most of these shops? Well, I think it helps to start with the perspective that they have when they're showing up every day. So take your CIO who's entrusted with managing a big pool of capital multi-billion dollar pool of capital. Maybe it's on behalf of an endowment or a foundation or a family office or a pension fund. It doesn't really matter. And they often don't have big investment teams. Variety of reasons why, but they really don't. And so the question you have to ask is, what are you trying to do with that capital? And how do you want to go about doing it? So generally speaking, it's not that hard for them to figure out what they want to do. There are some spending needs. It's basic. Figure out what the spending liability structure is and then what your time horizon is, how you want to invest over that time horizon. And then the question is, how do you want to execute that in the best way possible? And to do that in the markets, broadly defined, you have a choice. You can either try to do it yourself, or you can try to find who you think is doing it better than anyone else and partner with them. And there's clearly a cost to that. But when you start getting into the subtle doctrine of diversification and what it really means. And this came from Dave Swenson. When Dave Swenson started at Yale, most of these portfolios looked like 60 40, and 60 40 was like US stocks and bonds. And his first seminal insight was there's no diversification in that. I mean, there's some, but it's only two asset classes. And for most of these pools, they have long duration liabilities, so they're very equity centric. And that's where David started. He said, We're going to be equity oriented and diversified. We need to diversify what that equity risk is. And so he gets a label for saying he loves illiquids and alternatives. But that's true. But what he really did was say, well, U.S. equity market risk is not the only equity risk we should be exposed to. Let's diversify away from that. Turns out U.S. equities are the most liquid in the world. So by definition, anything else you did was going to be less liquid. So first thing they do is establish this approach. And let's say the approach is diversified multi-asset global then you have to go about figuring out how you do it. And the way most of these people have chosen to do it is to find managers that are experts in particular areas and then partner with them. So they'll have portfolios that might be 80 to 100 managers that canvas U.S. equities, international equities, could be fixed income, venture capital, private equity, real estate, real assets, say timber assets, energy assets, and then build a portfolio that way. So what they develop the expertise in is structuring the portfolio and identifying that talent and the the factors that go into success over time and then partnering with those people and trying to be long-term like everybody else does.
0: I think most people listening to this, there's been a pretty big shift, at least in the narrative. I don't know how much in the actual allocation on the big money side for this trend towards allocation on a passive, you can call it, but just kind of a buy and hold Exposure doesn't have to be index market cap weighted, but just in general versus picking managers. How much of that of a shift is actually happening in the institutional world? Is it still mostly picking of managers and active within the sort of buckets or is it an actual
1: real shift occurring? It's not very prevalent in the institutional world and certainly in the people I talk to, and there's a bunch of reasons why. We all know the arguments for passive management. Let's just start with rear view looking like S&P 500's beaten everything. Interest rates have gone to zero. So, and there's also this notion that it's always a zero-sum game and increased competition and ubiquity of information, all that kind of stuff. The problem is it mostly applies to U.S. equities and fixed income. So even like Charlie Ellis, who I've had on my show a couple of times, if you ask him about emerging markets, he would say, no, 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 you don't want to index in emerging markets. They say, what about small cap equities? He's like, no, you don't want to index in small cap equities. And then, well, what about Europe? It's like, "Eh, you know, probably not really Europe too. You certainly can't index in private equity or in venture capital or in real estate. And so the guy who writes the book, The Index Revolution, is sort of saying, if you really want this type of a structured portfolio, you actually can index. So that's the first Reason why they don't. The second reason is just this general belief. And to be fair, it's been the same belief for a decade, but this general belief that markets are priced at levels that going forward returns are not going to meet spending obligations. And so with rates at zero, and valuations of, say, the S&P where they are, you just can't hold that portfolio and expect you're going to meet your spending needs. You might see a little bit of indexing more of U.S. equities. For a long time, a lot of these pools of capital, the the small amounts of fixed income they have have been very plain vanilla deflation hedged kind of index U.S. government type bond portfolios, but not much else. I think that's much more a retail and not just retail, but like relatively unsophisticated retail that should be indexing piling their money from being the real patsies at the poker table to saying, okay, we can just sit around with everybody else.
0: Yeah. It feels like so many of these real money institutions, it's such a difficult task, particularly if you involve a lot of the vested interests. A good example could be, I don't know, Harvard or CalPERS where you have alumni and students and employees and future students and on and on and on. All of various levels of interests, what they want to see transpire, and also varying levels of understanding what's going on. I remember an article in the Harvard Crimson complaining about Harvard's performance, but then a few months later complaining about Harvard's compensation, (laughs) you know, so it's like really a difficult, impossible task. Any other thoughts on how that world has evolved or is going to evolve in the coming years before we start to transition to some other topics?
1: Yeah, I mean, look, I think it evolves more slowly than anything else, and for good reason. These pools of capital are very, very long duration. They shouldn't be evolving quickly. You do see some incremental changes and enhancements on the margin, and probably the most notable with some of the leading-edge institutions in the last couple of years. One is a little bit of a movement away from asset allocation. And again, it's on this concept that if the asset class buckets aren't really going to get you there, it's going to pay to be more opportunistic and to focus on what they perceive their area of expertise is, which has increasingly evolved to manager selection. So you are seeing, MIT is probably the most pronounced of that, where a bunch of years ago, Seth Alexander put out a piece that said, like, we pay attention to asset allocation for risk purposes, but we are good at as picking managers, and we're not going to let asset allocation buckets drive our manager selections. We can do overlays, we can do whatever we want for that. So that's one. The other and you really see this more in Australia and probably most pronounced in New Zealand, with the New Zealand Sovereign Wealth Fund, is this sort of notion of investing in factors versus asset classes. And the factors aren't quality growth, inflation, deflation. People have been, particularly New Zealand, has been really clever about what they think drives returns and how to structure a portfolio. They have a portfolio that has no US equities because it doesn't fit into one of their factors for how they're going to drive returns. But yeah, for the most part, these are very incremental changes. They're not at all kind of revolutionary changes.
0: Thinking about a lot of these institutions, theoretically, they have the single biggest advantage, which you alluded to being this long-term time horizon that trips up individuals, professional allocators, all the way up to the top. I mean, we see it, all the academic evidence time and time again. And the simplest way to describe this tug of war is, I've done this poll on Twitter, but many others have published similar. It said, how long would you give a manager underperforming before you fire them? And I forget what the percent on my Twitter was, but it was essentially vast majority under a couple of years and 90 some percent under four years or five. And then if you look at Vanguard has put out some great research, we'll put it in the show notes, but saying, even if you look at all the mutual funds in existence for the past 15 years- and even if you look at the ones that survived, and on average listeners, about half of funds close or merge every 10 years. And if you look at the ones that outperformed, how long of these streaks of underperformance they go through, and it's like 98% went through a period of, I think, four years of underperformance. And so this huge tug of war of this problem that people have, other than theoretical long-term time horizon, which we all should share as a goal, right? Everyone says they have that goal. How do you actually think about either allocation, guardrails, or behavioral reasons not to muck that up? That's like the number one impossible allocators. When do I know this is a bad investment? When do I know that it's just a bad
1: run? Well, let's start with whatever the base rate or baseline facts are, which is we're going to muck it up. (laughs) We know we're going to muck it up. Whether it's stocks or managers, it doesn't make that much of a difference. One statistic that I've seen in the last year that I think it came from Michael Movison about stock pickers is also true of manager selectors, which is generally speaking, people are much better on the buy than the sell. And what's been tricky that I experienced in my years was first you start with the awareness that people chase performance. And so you try to create investment theses and risks that aren't tied to the things that would give you that behavioral bias against you. So you try to be qualitative instead of quantitative. You might lay out a bunch of theses that could change and risks that could surface to try to stay the course. What you then find is that invariably you're in an investment meeting and someone's underperformed and someone on the team says, you know what? This manager just isn't as good as we thought. We had already laid out the risks, the risks played out. So we were right, but they weren't as good as we thought. Those conversations always happen after a period of bad performance. And I have yet, with one exception, which I can explain, been in a situation where someone walked into a room and said, you know, we've been investing in this manager for like eight years and they are killing it let's redeem. Never heard that in my life. Never heard it. Only time it's ever happened, and it happened with me a couple of times, it does happen when you're invested tactically. So like when you're shorting subprime mortgages in 07 and it plays out, this windfall gain and you move on. But that's not what most of the manager selection opportunities are. So you know going in that there's just this bias. If someone's performing well, you're not going to redeem. And there is some level of turnover. And so you try to be patient. I mean, I... Got lucky in that I watched this on the other side in my years at Yale. I mean, I don't know what the average tenure of their manager relationships is today, but I know after like 18 years or 20 years when David was at Yale, it was like 14 years. And you know, you learn a lot in those first couple of years and you turn over things more than you would. They have been uncanny at staying the course and at times knowingly probably staying too long, but very Buffett-like in that way. And I think that that, does allow you to avoid some of the behavioral biases. And frankly, this movement in private equity, and there's a lot of market dynamics of why private equity has been good and why it might be overpriced today. But one of the things that private equity allows everyone involved to do is get out of their own way. You make the decision once, it doesn't matter what happens. You as the chief investment officer can't change your mind. Your board can't tell you to change your mind. The people that own the companies aren't going to turn around and sell it really quickly. And any investment strategy, if you say, you know what, no matter what, you're in this for 10 years, is going to do a heck of a lot better than engendering all the behavioral biases of the decisions and the mistakes that everyone makes along the way.
0: It's one of the things I've changed my mind on in the last decade plus is the concept of illiquidity being a feature, not a bug. Because thinking of so many examples, and not just to the downside, to the upside too, how many people, if they had an investment that doubles. They're like, oh my God, amazing sell. And then it it goes on to 10X or hundred X. And we're not just talking about GameStop or crypto. I mean, we're talking about all sorts of stocks and investments. People get it when it comes to one investment, which is housing. They can say, look, my parents bought this house for a hundred grand. Now it's a million. This is why real estate is such a good investment. And on average, usually it's not that great of an investment. It's just that it had the time to compound. What are good sell reasons for someone who's allocated for years what are reasonable ways to think about okay, how should I establish cell rules and what are some of the criteria that are okay?
1: Yeah, I mean one of the fascinating things about the seat is those criteria can involve both the organization and the underlying assets or investment strategy. So, you know, at the organizational level, change is always a sign. Some change is natural. Sometimes allocators overemphasize change in an organization, but if you have important people leave, if you have friction dynamics that create, these are organizations and organisms that have to make decisions. And so that's probably the biggest one. And then you'll also have at strategy levels, thing markets change, opportunity sets change. And you may have hired a particular manager for an investment strategy that Maybe you lose confidence in them and executing that strategy and you still want to be involved in the strategy, or maybe the strategy is no longer attractive for the long term. It can be lots of little things. I think most of the decisions and changes that get made are very subtle. It's sort of pattern recognition with a hope and a belief that you're right and a clear cognizance that you might not be and you're going to make mistakes.
0: How do you kind of think about... I mean, and this is hard to do. Harder for everyone, I think, not getting caught up in the hot, shiny object of the day and thinking through an actual long-term allocation.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's a little bit easier in that seat because you don't really have the pressures, the short-term pressures other people face. So think about the crypto world right now. It's clearly the hot, shiny object now. Probably was to some extent in 2017 as well. There were no institutions that cared in 2017. And now they're starting to pay attention. You don't see a lot of activity. To the extent you do, they probably invested a few years ago in a venture capital fund because the whole ecosystem feels like a venture capital investment, whether you're buying Bitcoin or actually investing with Chris Dixon and Andreessen or something like that.
0: And it gives them a little arm's length career risk. They can say, well, it
1: didn't work out. It's VC." Yeah. (laughs) I mean, that's always the inflection. So the inflection in the conversation comes from when people in the boardroom in the past would have said well why would you do that to why aren't you doing that and i experienced that with hedge funds kind of back in 2002 you went through 2000 to 2002 and hedge funds generally did quite well when the market didn't and before then even though i had had exposure to them a long time before yeah most institutions didn't and david swinson then writes his book and after that hedge funds do well and so now you have like real time market evidence that this thing he was writing about made sense And right around the time when we started Protege, you'd go and talk to institutions. And in the boardroom, people would be saying, oh, why don't we have these hedge funds in our portfolio? Where like three or four years before, with certainty, that same board would have been saying, oh, why would we ever do this? That's when those changes happen. And I think we'll see it in the crypto world, depending on how it evolves over the next couple of years. And it'll start with Bitcoin and maybe Bitcoin and Ethereum. And somewhere down the line, we'll see how the whole ecosystem evolves. But there isn't a lot of change. And it's for the right reasons. I mean, some of it's job risk. But a lot more of it is David Swenson used to come in the office every day and think as if he had a perpetual time horizon. He really did. I mean, and you could feel it. And the number of times someone would say, oh, they're so short-term focused. or And that might mean three years. What I've learned since is that the long-term really is rarely longer than three years and maybe, maybe five in some situations. Private equity firms used to own businesses for a long time and even they only own businesses for that period of time now. So there are very few people like David at Yale that really have the right governance structure and full alignment so that they can think for the really long term, even if the pool of capital is going to be around for much longer than the principals in the seats. You gave
0: an example in your book, and I can't remember if it's you
1: or one of the allocators, but talking about how
0: someone's talking to a hedge fund or a PM and saying, look, we're on board, ready to allocate. And then you go talk to the board and the board's like, no. Is that a good thing? Good check, bad check, a huge pain in the butt. There's so many cooks in the kitchen, if that's a way of saying it.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's the biggest challenge and something I didn't appreciate really until I started doing the podcast of how big of a challenge that is for a lot of CIOs. Part of that was because Yale's governance structure is really aligned and that doesn't happen at Yale. But yeah, I gave this story in the book of, I won't say the institution, but there's another Ivy League institution that for many years, it's better today, but for many years was notorious for bad governance. I never understood what that meant. and I asked one of the former CIOs how many times When you had an investment recommendation that clearly fit into the policy statement and all that stuff that fit, what percentage of the time did that get turned down? And he said 60%, which you'd say, wait, didn't you like talk to the board members ahead of time? They knew what was coming. He said, yeah, they would all say great. And then they'd get in the boardroom and fight with each other. So that's an extreme, probably the most extreme example that I know. But the whole structure right most investment offices have one of two structures either the people in the office are tasked with making those investment decisions and maybe it's within bounds of asset allocation or they every decision goes to the board and the board approves it well functioning organizations those things are harmonized and you don't have a lot of those situations but It's a challenge. And the person in the CIO seat has a boss. They might be the CIO of a big pool of capital, but they are reporting to a committee. They are reporting to a family, whatever it is. And they have to figure out not just what investments should they make, but what investments should they make and how do they get those investments approved.
0: I think it's important, and alluding to this importance is on your section on investment frameworks, you weren't leading with strategy and process, you were leading with governance. And we also talk a lot about investors, and this is Most institutions have this, but almost never does an individual or even a professional financial advisor write down their actual process too and talk about all these things and have a policy portfolio or whole program put together. And it's useful to at least think through and then sit down with your family or whatnot. I think there's probably an opportunity for somebody to build out an education curriculum around this sort of concept and help people. I know some of the Big investment managers do this in-house, but I think having it broadly available would probably be helpful. Morningstar talks about it, Christine Benz, but particularly useful. I want to save some time to get down to what we're (laughs) going to talk about on this podcast to be a little different, but as usual, things go off the rails. All right. So you're in the seat of someone who's spoken to thousands of managers over the years, all the biggest institutions in the world. You've seen everything possibly that one could see. So this is going to be fun because we're going to talk about how does someone in your chair actually put this to work? Ted's agreed to open his kimono. For the people watching us on video, he's slowly undressing right now. Just kidding. He's not. So Ted, talk to us about how does this actually play out in society's allocation? What do you do with your own
1: dinero? So pretty interesting, right? In the sense that for many, many years... I was investing in a certain structure. So, Yale or Protege were investing in hedge funds. And then you step out and you're on your own and you say, okay, like, what do I want to do? And I think I, to some extent, there was a little bit of initial trial and error, but then I got to a place where I was blending what I know with what I think like my own competitive advantages are. So, you start with what is the structure of what I want to own? Like, what's the purpose of the money? And for me, it's like, well, I just want to be cash flow positive year to year in my life. And then I can invest for some period of time, though I like liquidity. I believe in the you never know. So I'm not going to take 30, 40% of my money and put it in private assets that I can't see for 10 years just because I just don't like it. Not my comfort level. It's not even a risk question, it's just my comfort level. So we start with that. And one of the things I talk about a little bit in the book, which is very true of me and everybody else, people come to these seats, my own seat or a CIO seat with like their own natural habitat. They got trained somewhere, they have some set of beliefs, there's something they're more comfortable with. I started in the business following public equity managers and then later in hedge funds. So the public markets are more my domain than the private markets, certainly more my comfort zone. So when I started out, I was like, I know all these managers, I know what stocks they own. Like I'm gonna look at 13Fs, I'm gonna buy stocks and just like anything else, I was pretty good at buying stuff. This really only goes back five years when I left my old shop. And I was terrible at knowing when to sell. Like something would wobble around and I didn't know anything about it. I wasn't following the companies. So I kind of moved away from that. And my real sweet spot is investing in managers. And so then the question is, how do I do it? Some in the US, some international, some private, pretty straightforward in, in that respect. And then I kind of break it down and say, okay, where do I want to place my bets? And so I have some money with some managers that I think are just exceptional. Internationally, I invest with WCM out in Laguna, kind of your neck of the woods to some extent. Terrific people. I love their strategy. They're pretty growth-oriented, so I'm kind of sensitive to that, but I like that. I invest with them in both international and emerging markets. In the US, I've tended to do stuff myself a little bit. I like things I call manager substitutes, so something that might be available in the public market that is a stock, but it looks to me like a manager, like I'm underwriting manager. So the easiest example is a couple of years ago, I bought Pershing Holdings when it was at a 25% discount. I actually invested with Bill in the early years, and I know all the strengths and weaknesses. That's my biggest position in the US. I've owned Berkshire Hathaway for a long time. Can
0: we talk about the Pershing for a second? Because this is a unique investment, and I think... I was going to try to listen to their quarterly report this past week, but it was at like four in the morning, West Coast time, so I didn't. But this is a unique bird animal. Could you tell us a little bit about what it is, what they do? Because they had a pretty interesting 2020 as well.
1: Yeah, the whole history has been interesting. So Pershing Square, you know, Bill Ackman and people, everybody knows the name. In I don't remember what year it was, the year before Valiant collapsed. So that was probably 2015. So 2014, I'm guessing. I might have the year wrong by one. Bill had a monster year, and He raised, I think it was $3 billion holding company listed then in Luxembourg. Now it's also listed in London. And it was effectively the same strategy that he was doing in the hedge fund, which is a concentrated activist strategy. He'll occasionally put hedging type positions on, clearly he'll occasionally short. I hope he doesn't do that anymore for his own sake. And the difference with the holding company was a couple of things. The first is it was traded and listed, and he was telling everyone was going to trade in a premium. And like every other listing holding company, it quickly went to a discount. The second is he can put leverage on the strategy because it is a holding company and there's about a billion dollars of borrowing. I think it's a $10 billion, eh, nine or $10 billion market cap now. And because of his style of investing, he needs to have less liquid positions. So even a, a hedge fund and his hedge fund had very long-dated liquidity, you know, people could take their money out. And that could prevent you from being activist in something where you want to go on the board and make change. And so he was going to have a larger concentration in the activist positions in that holding company. So you basically have a concentrated portfolio called eight to 10 large cap equity positions run by bill, the ability to hedge. He also did one thing that hasn't been materially valuable for the holding company, but he didn't want to discount the fees. But what he did was he let the holding company have an ownership in his private hedge fund business. I think it was 20% or something like that. So today's private hedge fund business is probably only a billion, billion and a half dollars. But the fees on that, some of those fees would go to reduce the fees in the holding company. He had his problems with Valiant. He had a bad year or two, and in those, now you're below your high water mark. You're not paying an incentive fee, so you've got a, you know, one and a half percent management fee or whatever it is, maybe a little bit less. And it was trading at a 25 percent discount. And you look at what he owns; they're all very liquid names that trade in the market. And one of the old ways of thinking about valuing, I did a bunch of work on closed end funds when I was at Yale that traded at discount. You could say, well, you could go buy the stocks. But if you do it through the holding company, you have to pay him management fees. So you could discount the stream of management fee income. And what you end up getting is like a natural 8 to 10% discount based on that stream. But this thing's trading at a 25% discount. So he's done really well. And then you have things that happened like last year where right before COVID hit, he bought a bunch of credit default swaps. And he basically saved all of the money that he would have lost in the downturn in March and April, turned around, closed them out, and then just rebought the same names. And he had a 70% year last year. So that's an example of something I'll do where, to me, it looks like underwriting a manager, but you know, like, I have a high degree of confidence that's going to beat the market over time. So I'd rather own that than the S&P 500.
0: There's a nice couple extra points, and you hit the nail on the head. I mean, we talked about this during the last crisis. There's a handful of these foreign listed funds. We talked about third point during the global financial crisis. They have a closed-in fund that traded at a 50% discount in net asset value. And these things happen on occasion. And, and in the closed-in fund world, you see it as well. And the challenge is not bills specifically, but to the rest of the closed-in fund space, they traditionally trade at discounts because they're high fees. And a lot of them are just a mess. But some of these top-tier managers like Pershing, we were talking about this in March. I mean, I almost never talk about securities, but it was getting to a 20, 30. I think it hit a 40% discount at one point. And the market wasn't appreciating. It didn't understand that it had the credit default swaps and bill to his discredit or credit, whatever it may have been, you know, goes on TV and was talking about it. So people were even more confused. But so you get access to a top tier manager that has the ability at least to add things like, and I think he's re-added, I'm not sure, some of the credit default swaps, but at a big discount. And that seems like such a no brainer on the portfolio side. It's such a big opportunity There's one more thing that they've been doing, which is they've been buying back. A lot of the problem with closing funds is you could get in a 20% discount, does no good because it never closes. And there's been a lot of these activist funds have been trying to do this for decades. But Pershing has a feature, and we'll put a link on the show notes, you guys do your own due diligence, that they're allowed to buy back their own shares. And I think they've spent hundreds of millions, if not more, buying back shares. So it has a natural... Discount closing mechanism. Anyway, take a look, listeners. We'll put it in the show notes links.
1: So that's public market exposure, and then through the podcast, through relationships, I see some interesting stuff in the private markets. And again, my sweet spot tends to be betting on the people more than more than the asset. So things like I've invested with Jason Carp at Human Co. He's a former hedge fund manager who has a holding company in the health and wellness space, and he's someone I've known for a long time, and is just a super super talented investor. I've invested with Brent Beshore, who's like the most popular social media investor and kind of helped him and Patrick O'Shaughnessy structure that first permanent equity fund.
0: Brent, by the way, is probably the person that gave me, I'm convinced I had COVID last March. I was hanging out with him in Jackson Hole, the last <laughs> trip I had. And he's telling me stories where we were chatting at the top of the gondola over a drink and listening and I came back sick as a dog. So, Brent, if you're listening to this, I'm pretty sure I blame you. Anybody said otherwise, but I don't care
1: what they say. I'm convinced you gave me COVID in last March. Keep going. So I've got a couple of single asset SPVs with managers I know. One's a late stage private. went by an old friend of mine, Sean Grogan, who used to run a hedge fund. Another is a gold miner. Through a fund called Condir Resources, Ryan Shedler down in Dallas. And there's people I've known a long time who have their largest position and they kind of offer it up. So I've done a little bit of that. My most recent two investments are probably the ones I'm most excited about. One's a private equity fund called Arctos Sports Partners. I'm a sports junkie. I got introduced to the folks at Arctos because people thought they would make a great podcast. And this was probably a year, year and a half ago, and they hadn't even raised a first fund. And I was like, yeah, no, but maybe. So this fund is buying minority interests in sports franchises. And there are the simple story is they are far better businesses than people appreciate, and people, including the minority owners, appreciate. COVID had some interesting dynamics of forced capital calls. So all the people who had vanity, minority ownership interests of sports franchise and are used to clipping a coupon are now being asked to contribute to capital, particularly kind of large market major league baseball. And really very, very strong team of people doing this. And so I got reintroduced to them. They had raised a billion on the way to a billion and a half in a first close. They had done a couple of deals. I started talking to them more and more. They're not ready to do podcasts for a bunch of reasons they will at some point. And I just left after a couple hours saying, you know, I just, I get this. I want to invest in this. And the irony for me as a lifelong Yankee fan is the first deal they did was in Fenway Sports. And my wife got me a Red Sox sweatshirt to wear, which I've not yet put on, but I will at some point. And the other is something I'm doing myself, which is a portfolio of post IPO pre announced SPACs. Dig in. What's the approach there? So started hearing about this ecosystem along with everybody else and started paying attention to a little bit more last year. So the equity sponsor of the SPAC is the ultimate croupier at the poker table. This is the best risk reward if you can access it, which I only have one tiny position in it. Without going into it, people put up a little bit of money for the working capital of a SPAC, which is a blank check company. If they do a deal, that working capital effectively converts into equity. And it's basically a 10 to one risk reward for them. And they have such strong incentives to do a deal because of that and they somewhat control it that right now the base rate looks like 70% of to 80% of all the SPACs get a deal done. So amazing risk reward. The next level are the IPO investors. And this is where all the hedge funds are diving into. I don't have access to these, unfortunately, but here you're buying in at say $10 and you own a put at $10 and you're borrowing it next to nothing. So you have a free option. Most of these things trade up anyway, because there's a bunch of reasons why they trade up. One is a lot of them have kind of incorporated an IPO pop. So they're sort of publicly giving out the IPO pop. Some of it is just froth. People are excited about the kind of late stage venture in the public markets. So amazing investment. I don't have access to that. So what I've been doing is buying them, call it mostly between $10 and 1060, just to simplify it. So you're paying a few percent risk if a deal doesn't get done with a high belief that a deal will. And then you have a bunch of options. One of you have an option, which has happened a couple of times, where these things just trade up and you sell out of it. You know what your downside is. Two years from now, you can get out at 10 bucks. I started doing it in November. There is a lens for me that is helpful, which is because I know so many managers, I can quickly look at sponsors and have a very good sense of if I think they are likely to get a deal done or not. And some of it isn't that hard with a little bit of research you look at it. Sam Zell has a SPAC. Like I had no idea who started looking. The very best cannabis fund that I know that I had invested in a family office I was working with has a SPAC. I didn't even know about it, but I found it. And so I know that there's a lot of reasons why I think those deals are more likely to get done than sort of that very, very high base rate. And so I own probably 20 of them now. And depending on whether it's a retirement account or a cash account, fortunately for this particular strategy, like everybody else, I had a bunch of tax losses I took last year and COVID as I was rotating around stuff. So some of this will be short-term gains. It's not great for taxable investors, but I have a nice pocket I can fill of that. And then in retirement accounts, it's one way of my expressing, like, I think I can get pretty darn good returns doing this with very, very low risk in a market that feels kind of risky. And if the market keeps going up, the strategy will work even better. And if it doesn't, it'll be fine. So I love that strategy. I'm doing it. There's more active trading than I've ever done in my life. And I think it'll continue. There's a whole bunch of reasons why I think the SPAC movement will continue for a long time. Yeah. I mean, I think we're on pace for like a thousand SPACs this year. If we annualize the first month, we'll see you know, There's a lot of noise about that. I don't know how many, there's probably four, 450 now. I asked a dear friend of mine just a couple of days ago, how many private equity deals got completed last year, in 2020? And the answer to that is 4,100, which was actually a little bit more than 2019. So to say there's 400 SPACs that need to get digested in two years alongside of all this private equity activity, it's not necessarily the case at this point in time that they're going to be the incremental buyer that's pushing up prices and doing stupid deals. In fact, there have been a few things I've seen that don't make any sense, like SPAC sponsors on their last legs of their two years doing a deal that look like amazing deals at great prices that then trade way up. And you're like, well, why would somebody sell to them at those prices when they knew they had to get a deal done? So it's a really, really interesting space, and it's just fun to watch it, to have a bunch of friends. I've just joined the advisory board of a SPAC now with a a guy that I've advised for a couple of years, and so there's a lot of fun stuff going on in that space.
0: Yeah, you have a laundry list on both sides. You mentioned the Sam Zells of the world, and then you have the A-Rods and the Shacks and everybody getting involved. It's fun to see. You know what's interesting about you talking about your portfolio is that I imagine if some of the investors listening to this were coming into it, knowing your book, your history, they may have thought it's going to be like, all right, I have this much in SAC and Millennium and KKR, whatever. But the cool thing is that a lot of your allocations on the funds and the private side is what you mentioned is finding brilliant people that you know and letting them run with it, whatever it may be. And It's a pretty diverse group and it's a lot of podcast guests. You know, it's a lot of people you've met in the last five years, honestly. And it skews younger. Is that a reasonable statement?
1: So there's a hybrid of all of that. We're not going to go over all of it. But the biggest difference between what I'm doing now and what I did in the past is I'm just sharing all of it. So it's a mix. I mean, I think that a lot of the managers I've known over the years, I could invest with anytime I want. And... I've been a little bit more opportunistic. It's really only been the last year that I've kind of more aggressively built out a portfolio. And so like some of the people, you could say, yeah, well, Jason Carp's a podcast guest and he's been around the space, but he was a podcast guest because I knew him from my past life. The Arctos guys, that's a brand new one with people I didn't know and got introduced to. But most of the investments are actually people that I've known for a long time. But you're right about like, I don't have investments with like the big brand name people. And and part of that for me there's an angle on active management and certainly this style of active management that I think is completely lost in the active passive debate, which is the relationship aspect of it. Which is, I can give money to a manager, and I, yes, I will get the returns that come from that, but who knows what else is going to happen, both potentially financially and also just in life, right? There's so much optionality that comes from having great relationships with people. It's one of the reasons why it was easy for me to have a bias towards sticking with managers because I can't stand ending those relationships with people I respect and think are smart. And I'll happily like take a little bit of a financial hit in the short term if I think it'll keep going for the long term. So that's been a big one for me. Like I'm not that interested in investing with SAC or whatever because there's no relationship for me there. There may be for, if you've got a billion dollars to invest there and I had a lot larger pools of money in the past, you can be a meaningful client and develop those relationships. To the extent that some of it comes in and around the podcast, it's because that's where I've been focusing a chunk of my time the last couple of years.
0: And I think it's the right way to go about it. And I think particularly with relationships you have and also the smaller funds, I mean, most of the research generally points to a lot of the, in my opinion, if you're going to deviate from these broad indices, you want to be weird and different. Otherwise, there's no point in allocating to something that basically is the S&P. And so strategies or allocations, and we used to run into this when we looked at a lot of the 13F databases, so many funds just were like the hedge fund hotel names. It's like, why in the world would you want to be in this name that a thousand other hedge funds invested in, which I used to pick a fight with the Goldman VIP list where like, these are the names that most of the hedge funds. I'm like, why in the world would you ever want to own those? And we joked when they launched it, they were launching it so they could short it to hedge out the most owned names. It doesn't make any sense, but I think it's a thoughtful approach. Did you get to allocate to one of my favorite episodes? And he's a UVA
1: guy was the one on the sport. Do you call them ISAs? Is it? It's not ISAs, is it? I mean, ISA is in the educational world, but it's the same idea. It's a share of minority you know, baseball players. His name is Michael Schwimmer, big league advance. I have told him I want to invest in the next fund. It takes him a number of years to put the money to work. He's been in the news this week because I've known about this for a few years, but Fernando Tatis was one of his signees. And that only became public because Fernando backed him up when someone else went after him. I don't remember who it was. There was a lawsuit. Some agent came in after a player had signed this agreement a number of years later and said, oh, you shouldn't pay this guy, and Tatis backed him up. So it was publicly, somewhere it was in the public domain that he had signed a deal with Tatis, who just signed this big contract. I have not caught up on Michael on the returns, but that initial fund was $25 million. I have no idea, and it wasn't public how much he put in with Tatis, but that investment alone, which is probably a small percentage of the fund, could return the whole fund
0: there's some articles about it this week but yeah it's a fund returner they said it's something like 30 million but you know what they don't write about is the probably hundreds of other ball players that didn't make it that thank the lord for having that money or sharing that risk and you know, I'm a huge ISA guy so I know I get I get people aren't but when I heard that episode I was like oh this is the coolest
1: idea ever so yeah he tells the story great so one of the things I've thought about I don't know if I'll end up doing it ever but I've definitely thought about kind of raising an opportunistic fund sometime in the future, more friends and family than big institutional again. But just because some of these opportunities are really great and I see them and I can get access to some great stuff. Now, the one thing we didn't talk about, which is fine, I don't think we need to, but I do own a little bit of Bitcoin and Ethereum. And one of my advisees, a former hedge fund manager, just called me last week and we were talking about it. And he was just like, one of the things he always loved about me is that I'm just not dogmatic about what I'll own. And in a funny way, it I don't need to go through the same case everybody else would. But for me, it's also tied to people because I've learned about it from having people on the podcast. I just had Chris Dixon on in January. I'm about to do, depending on when this comes out, it might be contiguous, but I'm doing a mini series on crypto for institutions, which is very different from the deep dive that people will do on crypto. It's sort of like, what are the institutions thinking You know, what do they need to know to start to participate in this ecosystem? It's like a couple to 3%, you know, depending on going up or down. it's super interesting just to, trying to pay attention to what's going on in that whole ecosystem and how it's going to evolve. Yeah,
0: it's interesting because what you're seeing with Sailor and some of the companies putting the treasury on their balance sheet, we actually tweeted about this over a year ago. We said, I don't understand why a company doesn't just think about putting their balance sheet into crypto, they become a de facto ETF because the SEC is not going to approve one. Here you are now, MicroStrategy, I think it's a $7 billion company with five of it in crypto. The corporate balance sheet, I think is a fascinating because it applies to individuals too. And we wrote an article about this, but a different variant, which is a lot of people, and you have a very equity tilted portfolio. A lot of people think that T-bills or bonds are safe. And if you look at After inflation returns historically and volatility, it's actually, you can demonstrate that a portfolio, in my case, I use the global market portfolio to invest, but almost anything does a better job than T-bills or bonds alone. So they took it to a different conclusion than I would have, but it's interesting. How do you think about swapping stuff out? So you see a new fund, new idea comes along in a month, you got to get something to boot. What are you going to do? How do you think about it?
1: I don't like booting stuff, so... So part of what happens is, and we didn't really talk about it, between like Pershing and Berkshire, and I've owned some Google and Amazon for a couple of years because I tend to be a little more value biased than what I like with managers. There's just some liquid stuff. And part of the reason I like the liquidity is for just that reason. If Schwimmer comes and raises his next fund, I want to invest. I got a call last week from a close friend from business school who is just one of those people that money sticks to. And he had a late stage private deal that he's putting his mother and brother in. He said, they can't afford to lose money and this is my chance to make the money. He's calling 10 friends. I know the company a little bit. I know he's deeply involved in it and I'll put a little bit of money into that. I want to be able to do that. And so one of the things that gets lost, and it's very hard if you circle back to the institutions, there's an opportunity cost to being fully invested, which Seth Carman's really tried to teach all his clients over the years. He just has so much cash that people don't get the message. And so... Whether it's cash or for me, this whole spec portfolio is a great... I have a lot of my liquid portfolio now in the spec portfolio. Well, if something great comes up, it's a low cost option. I could just turn it around and, and invest in something. So I always try to keep, let's call it dry powder that's in the markets around.
0: That's actually something I've changed my mind on in the last 10 years. Dan Egan over at Betterment kind of helped push me over the edge, which is a concept, going back to the comments I was making a little bit earlier, where investing your cash with the understanding of how you do it will affect the volatility and risk profile and drawdown ends up being a much safer investment or potentially over time, but it has to be liquid. You can't be something that's stuck in 10-year investment or a house or something. But not many people do that. I think the three of us, I haven't really talked to anyone else that is that kind of screwy that invests everything.
1: Yeah. I mean, look, the other thing that's kind of wild is that after all this time, I really don't have money in hedge funds. And it's very straightforward. It crushes me because relationships are there. I think people I invested with were super, super talented, but it's tax inefficient. And what the returns they're shooting for take away taxes is just not that attractive. And so that's unfortunate. But by the time I left my old shop, like 90 plus percent of the capital was offshore tax exempt. I mean, hedge funds really aren't set up very well for taxable investors. So Every now and then something comes up and I get very, very tempted, but I haven't done it yet.
0: Yeah. My listeners are tired of hearing me say this, but if you go back a decade or more talking about the hedge fund and mutual fund world, and obviously I'm an ETF issuer, so biased, but very simply for this specific use case of active equities, it's crazy. And a lot of them have done it, not as much hedge funds, but a lot of institutions have moved to the ETF structure because it's so much of a better widget, but- who knows? I can understand why people wouldn't, particularly if you're charging performance fees. That's the big one. Can't do that in an ETF.
1: Yeah. Actually, I shouldn't say that. I'm about to make my first one. And it's strangely, it's in the Fund Funds, but it's purely biotech. So biotech-focused managers where good luck doing that in an ETF, right? You really need specialized expertise, and there's a huge amount of potential to add value on both sides. So that's a one-off. I think it's one that has a long, long legs to it.
0: I think people would be interested, Ted. You roll out a little capital allocators SPV or fund and say, look, these are some of the badass funds that come across my plate. You guys can invest. I think people would be interested in that. I think I gave you, by the way, my memory is failing, but we may have talked about this. But if not, this is at least a $10 million idea, maybe 20 in revenue. But over a decade, I've been trying to get someone, and there's only about five people I know that could do it, and you're one of them, to write... A research piece or have a service that simply profiles you could call it liquid alternatives, you could call it just other. You got your ETF core, fine, but you want these other ideas that profile, say once a month, once a quarter. This quarter we're gonna profile how to invest in farmland. Next quarter, manage futures, next quarter, long short equity, next quarter, we got a flash report on SPACs. There's no one to my knowledge that's doing that, at least for public consumption, that's decent. We used to call it the liquid alternatives, but it could be the CIO letter, the capital allocators letter. But how much would people pay for that? I think a lot because I talk to people all day long, advisors, individuals, and there's 10,000 funds out there, many of which are absolute garbage. Many of which people don't understand, the structures, the difference between X and Y. They would love to read that. So hire a team of 10. It's funny, like I'm probably naive about it. I would
1: think that that existed, but you'd know better than I would.
0: I know the investment research business pretty well. I know a lot of companies that do 10, 100 million plus in revenue. A lot of them, there's a pretty wide spectrum of legitimacy and quality, but there's plenty that are absolutely fantastic, none of which do specifically what I'm talking about. Usually it's stock picking, The amount of money Motley Fool must be paying on Instagram to target me specifically on (laughs) why now is the best time in history to invest. They must be thousands of dollars. I think at this point, they're slowly just trying to tweak me on their ad budget, but I would love to see it. And I would even love to see it in some of these specific silos. I tweeted yesterday about farmland and got a ton of DMs and emails and it's messy. It's complicated. Anyway, this is for your to do summertime sabbatical. You need some more work few more questions cuz I can't keep you all day I'd like to the interesting thing about your allocation and almost the interesting thing about everyone's allocation Josh Brown and Crew put out a book called How I Invest My Money and if you read that book all professionals across the board nobody's talking about a mean variance optimizer they're not talking about even a quant like me is not talking about super quanty allocations it's often squishy in a way it's personal it applies to different people and I think that's a Interesting takeaway in a world where people would just assume that everyone would be focused on a very specific sort of mindset when it comes to investing. But everyone ends up, I mean, if you put all of our friends in a room, they'd end up with totally
1: different portfolios. I'd say yes and no. I mean, let's take both sides of that. I say yes and no because they do end up with totally different portfolios. And at the core, they're all like 90 10 or 80 20 portfolios. On the mean variance optimizer, like I worked with them in my institutional years. And what you find is there's a little bit of garbage in. And you know that. And so you take what's out and you use it as sort of a guardrail. And if you look at the constraints, so if you have any one of these portfolios, like private equity, if you're reviewing your asset allocation once a year, let's say, you know your private equity allocation is going to determine itself based on the commitments you've made and the drawdowns. There's a bunch of things you can't control. And that's true of real estate. It's true of venture capital. So over a multi-year period, you can get it kind of directionally right. But basically what would happen is you'd constrain all these things and you'd throw stocks, bonds, and cash in, and those aren't that meaningful assets in the scheme of things for these portfolios. So I think the mean variance optimizer is nice, but it's a decent input. After you do it for a while, you realize like look, you're going to end up at 90-10, 100-0, 80-20, wherever you want. And then think a little bit about what's the risk character of the assets you're using to fill that bucket. So I might be 100% equities, but I might be 20-25% SPACs now. And that's doesn't have equity risk. It doesn't have equity downside. So you just sort of generally calibrate it. But I agree with you. Like ultimately, I could just index it. I'm sure that's like fine. But I invested actively for totally different reasons than my institutional years where the core of it was like I'm gonna win like I want to outperform an index I want to outperform now I want to compound my capital I don't care if I beat the index but I want to do it alongside of people that I respect and trust and I do believe they're going to do better and I just love thinking about it and trying to help them I mean that's the other thing is after a quarter century of experience one of the managers in my portfolio called me, In the fall, and had raised an opportunistic fund that has done very, very well. And kind of said, How should I think about what to do with this now? It was supposed to be a two year life, COVID bounce, whatever type fund. It's really played out. It's been less than a year. Like, can I talk through it with you? And just from being around and seeing many, many iterations of that, to be able to just have that I'm a small LP for him. But to be able to have a value-added conversation and bring that perspective of another adult in the room is just fun for me. It's just a different way. Like I said earlier, so much of what I'm doing now that's different from my whole career before is just sharing the information. And I really enjoy that because it is the institutional world is a lot more opaque than the, the more public and retail-focused world on the investing side.
0: Well, it comes back to the whole concept of why are you investing in the first place? And some of the reasons you mentioned, I think, are Spot on. For me, a lot of the private company investing I do is simply to A, support, but B, also to follow along. It's like the old managers that would buy one share of stock just to get the annual report, just to kind of keep in the loop of that concept. And some of these strategies and ideas for me are so far removed from what I do on a daily basis. And also it's the people you love that are great and brilliant at it as well. (laughs) I think those are all Valid ideas that you just don't get when you go buy one of Vanguard's Death Star ETFs. I love you, Vanguard. Sorry. Couple things. All right. So, most memorable investment. That's a biggie over the past 30 years for you. What pops up?
1: There's one that so dwarfs the others that it's like it always pops up, which is the Paulson Subprime Fund. The reasons it pops up are a little bit different, right? So we could say, yes, it was the best outcome by a mile. I never slept so well in my career. So. For the three or four years leading up to that in our fund, we were short high-yield bonds. and didn't pay off, but we'd been thinking the credit markets were frothy. We were not long like distressed debt managers or credit managers, so, so we, it was expressed in a negative way. And then my uh, late partner knew John Paulson and came in one day with this deck, and it was just like the risk reward was ridiculous, and it was housing, and we were pretty skeptical. Anyway, we did understand the structured credit waterfalls from the high yield shorting we were doing. And so it kind of led to that. What happened was you just don't, I'm writing about this in my weekly for my premium members this week in a little piece called, I told you so, just sort of, how do you handle all the naysayers? Like how do you handle Jeremy Grantham saying like, this is the biggest bubble ever and Jeff Gunlack talking about, we're gonna have a massive wave of high yield defaults because those people are always out there, but having lived through one of those and seen it, you get this appreciation for how hard it is to spot it. Because once that happened with Paulson, I paid a lot more attention to Peter Schiff saying, the world's gonna end again and again and again. And you start to realize how many people there are all the time. And it's really only with hindsight bias that you could say, I got it right. But at that point in time, you had a portfolio of risk assets, right? So pre-financial crisis, everything was just humming. Like our business was humming, our returns were humming. And then you find this thing that's so asymmetric to the downside that you're like, well, if we stop humming, this is probably leading edge. And it had like an insane, like, I don't remember what the number was, 20 to 1 type risk reward. And... You just don't find those. And so my partner kept looking for them and looking for them. I was like, they're they're gone. We're never going to find it again. But one of the things I found is that when everyone is looking the other way, when these things work, it's when it's priced into the market. If volatility is low, that's a great time to buy put options. We may think the market's high right now. We could talk about that. But I don't know what to do about it in terms of making money if it reverses. That's a little bit of the crypto investment for me, which is like, There's a case that you could easily understand that all of this money printing is a problem. And maybe this is one little way of protecting some of the capital. I mean, that's certainly what like Michael Saylor is saying. So that was the most memorable, was clearly like Gregory Zuckerman wrote a book called The Greatest Trade Ever. It probably was and certainly likely to be in my career. And we were the largest day one investors in that fund. It was like 3% of our fund and I was begging my partner to sell our high yield and put more in it. But I think we risked, it was an 8% negative carry. A lot of people avoided it because of that. It was an 8% negative carry at 3%. We we're paying 25 basis points a year. And over 2007 and then 2008, we added like 20% to the fund on a 25 basis point position. So, you know, fund to funds too, like it just doesn't, just doesn't happen.
0: Where are you finding those today, Ted? You got to let us know. We got to sign up for your newsletter, I guess. I mean,
1: it's Bitcoin, right? We're not going to find those. I mean, I do think if you could find your way into being a SPAC sponsor, I think that's a 10 to 1. It's so easy for them to raise money because of the free option they're giving hedge funds and other IPO investors. So that's pretty darn interesting. But that's work and deal expertise and all that kind of stuff. I don't really look for those things. I don't think they exist for the most part.
0: What's your most memorable fund manager meeting? Does anything come to mind?
1: Oh, boy.
0: While you think about it, there was a quote from your book that I loved almost more than anything, which was talking about finding managers. And it says, manager skill is rare. It's really hard to identify in advance. Sometimes it's hard to identify after the fact.
1: (laughs) Matt Winery from New Zealand Super. I mean, there have been so many. I remember some more by less the meaning itself. Well, I'll tell you one fun story. This was a very self-deprecating story. So I turned 25. In, in 1995 and I had a bunch of friends take me out for my birthday. I'm not like a big drinker or anything but I got, I got pretty lit up and got sick and I remember like slamming my, I had one of those circular metal garbage cans left over from college and I like ripped over to you know whatever I had a big fat lip. I come into the office kind of hung over the next day, the only time I probably ever did that. And George Rohr was presenting. So George Rohr started a fund called New Century. And at the time, they were buying Russian vouchers. And these were the privatizations in Russia. They were buying these things for pennies on the dollar. Their team included, quote, unquote, private security. They had to have ex-JGB officers because... The actual stock ledger was handwritten, and people would erase your name and put their. It was just totally like old Russia, corrupt. One of the most amazing investment stories, like ever, and we're there on the front line. And I remember the meeting, and Seth Alexander, MIT, will never let me forget it because I just kept falling asleep. Oh my god! Oh. <laughs> noticeably falling asleep. Oh, yeah. I mean, afterwards, Uh. like Dean Takashi was like, why don't you just go home? It's fine. I had been there for a couple of years. So I had a little bit of street cred there, but that was the most embarrassing. And, you know, there were so many. Like I wrote in this week's little thing Jeremy Grantham was one of the first managers I ever met in 1992 at the beginning of a bull market. And he was so pessimistic that I never understood, hey, buy and hold long term compounding. I'm 22 years old. All I have to do is put my money away because I thought everything was going to roll over. I thought it was, I just missed the bull run. So there are so, so many of those kind of like old stories and more recent stories along the way. That's great.
0: Ted, this has been a blast. I'm looking forward to subscribing to your new research service and fund when you roll it out that I force your hand on one of these days, please. <laughs> I, want, I want someone to do it. Where do people go to find all your, what you're up to?
1: Yeah, thanks, Mavit. So Capital Allocators is the podcast website, capitalallocatorspodcast.com. Might be changing that name in the future to capitalallocators.com. I have that URL, but that's where everything is. Man, it's fun being here with you, Matt.
0: Pick up his book, ladies and gentlemen. Ted, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Meb. Podcast listeners will post show notes to today's conversation at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. If you love the show, if you hate it, shoot us feedback at the themebfabershow.com. We love to read the reviews. Please review us on iTunes and subscribe to the show anywhere good podcasts are found thanks for listening friends and good investing